So let us open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. This morning I have the task and privilege of getting to wrap up our study of 1 John. It's been a wonderful study. And before I go any further, um, I just wanted to take a quick second to express my appreciation to God for Stephen, who preached a couple weeks ago, and also for Christian, who preached last week. I'm grateful for Billy and Hugh as well, but we get to hear from them. Uh, but you guys in particular, just wanted to express my appreciation to God for you. I think both Stephen and Christian showed us aspects of the Apostle John's heart uh, in the way that they preached to us. Um, you know, I think of Stephen. Stephen has this kind of pastoral practicality uh, that he preached with, just like a practical life. He's a proven guy. He's a guy you can tell like he's got a lot of, a lot of life that he's lived, a lot of responsibility, a lot of wisdom. Uh, and he came across as just this pastoral heart, and I just appreciated that about you, man. And then Christian, um, Christian was wrestling through his voice. I know that that was something that was difficult for him, but man, we were just so served by you, man, and, and the the kind of phrase that came to mind was just theological precision. Uh, I just think that, that you have a way of, of communicating words uh, with clarity and with precision. Uh, and I think that served us really well. So thank you for both of you guys for that. And, and isn't this the kind of heart that we encounter as we listen to the Apostle John in this letter? I mean, his letter's loaded with theological truths that contain crucially important implications. But yet at the same time, it's, it's a warm letter. It's, it's seasoned with pastoral care and practical wisdom. Many theologians, they believe that this letter was actually written to the congregation of which the Apostle John was an elder. And as we read it, I mean, it's not really that hard to imagine. As, as we've studied it, haven't you heard John's loving and fatherly heart for the people for which he's writing? Sure, he speaks with such boldness and care, but he also speaks with a tenderness and, and he addresses his readers with phrases like, my beloved and my little children. All throughout the letter, you really get the sense that, that John loves these people. And that sounds like the two guys that we got to hear from uh, in the last couple of weeks. So thank you guys for embodying the heart of John in this letter to us. So in this letter, John has been concerned for his readers' well-being. He's been burdened by their spiritual confusion. It kills him to see his fellow brothers and sisters struggling to have faith and wrestling with their doubts. He longs for them to experience the confidence and joy they're always meant to experience in their salvation. Haven't we seen that all throughout this letter? It's been John's main burden since the very beginning. John wants to strengthen his congregation's confidence in the eternal life that they've been given in the gospel. And I know that's what our pastors want for our congregation as well. How, how do I know that? Because I, I get to hear, just being on staff, I get to hear our pastors talk about our lo their love for us. I get to hear them lift us up to the Lord in prayer. I get to see how they carry our burdens in their hearts and how they seek to encourage each of us on in our faith and, and how they do all that they can to try to equip us for the work of ministry that each of us are called to do. I know that Billy and Alan and Hugh, they long for each of us, for each of you, to have joy and confidence in knowing that we are children of God. I know they feel the responsibility to protect us from false doctrines, from ideologies that can try to creep into our minds and our hearts, that can threaten to undermine the work that Christ has accomplished for us in the cross. I know, I know it's their desire that we be a body of believers who love God and who love one another. And I know it's a concern of theirs that we keep our eyes fixed on the true Christ and the true hope of our future, eternal life with our Savior. It's a concern for our elders, and it was a concern for the Apostle John, even all the way up to this final chapter. It's still John's main concern that each believer reading the words contained here would know, he said that over and over again, he would, that, they, that we would know that we have eternal life. So let's look at this last chapter. Would you stand with me as we begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For, there it, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that he, we have the requests that we asked of him, that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we often pray on Sundays, we, we, in this moment, are submitting ourselves to the preaching of your word. Lord, we want to, um, and, and actually the only reason we want to, Lord, is because you are working in our hearts right now, Lord. But we, we want to come and lay ourselves before you, submitted to this text, submitted to what you want to communicate to us from this text, Lord. And we we want to be changed, Lord. We want to be encouraged. We want our faith stirred. Uh, Lord, we want to know things that we maybe didn't know just a few minutes ago because we've forgotten them or because we've never known them before. Lord, and this is all the work that your Spirit does in us to teach us, to admonish us through the preaching of your word, to, to grant faith to us. Lord, so would you do that, we pray. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that, that you would meet with us individually as we hear your word preached today for your glory. Amen. Amen. All right, well, how are you at taking tests? Are you one of those people who loved test day in school? Got all jittery inside, eager to rise to the challenge and show off all your newfound knowledge? Maybe you just couldn't wait to get to your Scantron sheet and fill out all the little bubbles with your number two pencil. Anybody not know what a Scantron sheet is? I'm probably like dating myself. Uh, or maybe, maybe you're the kind that dreaded test day. <laughs> You'd wake up with chicken pox all over your body for like the ninth time, but really you just painted them on the night before. <laughs> you never bothered with studying because it never seemed to help anyway, and it always seemed like the teacher would test you on the most obscure details. Never about anything that was actually taught in class or that would actually help you become a functioning adult in society. And the test questions, they just always seem so confusing. You're probably figuring out what kind of test taker I can tend to be. But the value of a test is in the eye of the beholder. 
Tests can be a discouragement to some, or they can be a gift. They can reveal how much of a failure you are, or they can assure you of how much you actually know about a given subject. As we've studied 1 John, John has wanted his tests to have the latter effect. Do you remember what those three tests were? We've talked about them several times. The doctrinal test, the test that asks, do you believe God's word and believe in God's son, Jesus? Or the relational test that asks, do you love God and love his people? Or the moral test, do you obey God and obey his commandments? John has given us these tests in this letter in order to boost our confidence in the eternal life that was purchased for us by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he's done that over and over and over again, hasn't he? I mean, I, I had had some notes uh, that I took out earlier, but uh, just there were se- there's several places all throughout this letter where John is using those tests. He's using those tests to try to build up his reader's confidence that if they believe that Jesus is the true Son of God, if they have a genuine love for God and love for his people, if they desire to obey God and keep his commandments, they belong to God. That's what the test tells them. They belong to God, and therefore, they will receive the promise of eternal life with him. And you'd think maybe that by the time we get to chapter 5, John would have made his point. I mean, how many times we've heard him say this throughout the first four chapters? You know, maybe he'd start wrapping things up with some closing salutations, or maybe give one of Pastor Billy's favorite biblical one-liners, greet one another with a holy kiss. But no, John's not finished yet. We see it again right here at the beginning of chapter 5. Look at verse 1 and 2. Everyone who believes... That Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. There they are again, all three tests. Did you see them? John says, if you believe Jesus to be the Christ, that's the doctrinal test, and if you love the Father and love the Father's children... That's the relational test. And if you obey his commandments, that's the moral test, you can know, you can be sure that you have been born of God. Now, in those first two verses, there's a lot of births and children and love going on, and so the logic can get a little tricky. Uh, But this is basically what it's saying. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are a child of God. That's what he says in verse 1. Then he says, and if you love the Father then you love the Father's children, the other ones who have been born of God. And then then it's like John's asking, how do you know if you're one that loves the Father's children? Well, in verse 3, he answers that question by saying that you love the Father and you do what he says. That's what it says in verse 3. Look at that. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. If you've been tracking all along through this letter, this isn't new information. It's just a little repackaged. All John is saying is that doing what God commands proves that you love him. Okay, oh great, John. Here you go again with all the tests. So now you're telling me the only way to prove my love for for God is to obey him. That I gotta somehow figure out a way to obey everything he tells me to do. That that just sounds too difficult. I might just call in sick and get an F. But, But that's not what John is saying. John isn't trying to heap on a list of requirements that will enable us to earn God's love. That's not what he's talking about. And I suspect that that's why he continues in verse 3 by saying, look at at the second half of verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. All right, hold on, John. Isn't that an oxymoron, a burdenless command? Isn't that like saying we're about to run an exhaustionless marathon? <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. How is a command, something that you're directed to do by someone exercising their authority and will and prerogative over yours, how, how can that not be a burden to you? Well, Because the heart of a Christian, one who has been truly born of God, that heart rejoices at the thought of obeying his Father. Matthew 11.30 says that the yoke that God gives to his children is not a yoke that is crushing and, and condemning. It's a yoke that is easy and light. It's not that obedience to God will never feel like work. It takes discipline. It, it will cost us. We'll have to say no when we're tempted to say yes and vice versa. 
We'll have to sacrifice when it seemed easier to just do things the way we would want to do them. But obedience to God isn't supposed to feel like an oppressive weight to God's children. If we're truly a child of God, obedience should always be something we are joyfully willing to do. That's hard. It's a hard saying to say. Because I would imagine that some of you here this morning feel weighed down and discouraged at the thought of obeying the Lord in whatever the circumstance is that's coming to your mind right now. You feel weighed down and discouraged at the thought of having to say no to something that is unrighteous in order to say yes to something that is righteous. And, and if that's you, if, the, if there's this discouragement, this weight that you're feeling, this burden that you're feeling at the thought of wanting to do something that you know would please the Lord, then that might be an indication that there's something that's a little off in your heart. And, and if that's true, thank the Lord that he would want to bring your attention to that this morning, because the Lord doesn't want his commands to feel burdensome to his people. So if that's you this morning, repent, come to the Lord, ask the Lord, Lord, I want to obey you. I'm a child of God and, I, and you are my father and I want to I obey. I want to learn to, to, uh, to joyfully submit to your will. Because look at what John says in verse four. He says, for everyone who has been born of God, all the children of God, they do what? They overcome the world. He doesn't say for everyone who has been born of God, you just got to keep your fingers crossed, or he doesn't say, you know, you got a decent chance of making it. No. He says if you've been born of God, if you've trusted in Jesus as the Son of God, you will overcome the world. Bet. That's what the young people say. There's no question. The world has zero chance of overcoming you. You will be victorious. Is that good news for your soul this morning? Well, how, John? In what way? How will I be victorious? Look back at verse 4, second half. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Okay, so John is saying that it's our faith that gives us victory over the world. Now, let's not take that the wrong way. John isn't talking here about the kind of name it and claim it faith that's so prevalent in the church today. Our faith isn't some weapon that we wield whenever we want a good parking spot or a break on our taxes or to see some bully get what's coming to him. The kind of faith that is victorious over the world is a faith placed in Jesus as the supreme conqueror over death and evil and sin and suffering and Satan. That's why John asks this next thing in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the kind of faith he's talking about. Faith that believes Jesus really is who he says he is. Faith that believes Jesus actually is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Faith that believes Jesus really gave up his life for us. So we could become children of God. Faith that believes Jesus actually gives eternal life to all who call upon him as Lord. This is the kind of faith that enables us to overcome anything the world can throw at us. There's no sort of suffering or sickness or loss that will ever be able to ultimately overcome us. Do you believe that this morning? Our Savior, your Savior, promises us eternal life, everlasting joy and happiness in his presence. And he promises that for all of eternity. This is why we sing songs out of faith. Songs like, we look to you, we look to you. Why? Christ, the conquering son of God. We look to you, we look to you, and we ask in faith, Lord, complete what you've begun. Do you have that kind of faith this morning? Do you believe in that kind of conquering son of God? Do you believe that that son of God will complete the work that he has begun in your life? Maybe you don't this morning. Or maybe as you're hearing God's word, you're realizing that you don't. Maybe you didn't even know that you didn't. Maybe you're hearing this and saying like, man, I... I don't know that I've got that kind of faith. Well, maybe this is an opportunity the Lord has given you, whether you're a believer who needs a strengthened faith, or maybe you're an unbeliever here this morning who has never placed faith in this kind of son of God, 
in Jesus Christ. I think the text is calling us to place our faith in Jesus so that we might overcome the world, so that we might obey the burdenless commands of the Lord. And if that's, that's the call that's coming out to your ears this morning, would you respond to the Lord? Well, then in this next section of chapter 5, we see that apparently in John's day, uh, and, and other guys have touched on this, we, uh, there had been these false teachers who had been stirring up suspicions about whether or not Jesus was actually the Son of God. They were questioning whether or not his death on the cross was really sufficient for making atonement for sin. Was he really God's son, or was he just a really good man, and he had been indwelt by the Spirit, but then the Spirit left, like this Gnostic kind of thing? Um, but we can assume this to be true, that, that there were these skeptics, these, these false teachers. We can assume this to be true because of what John says in the beginning of verse 6. So look at that. Verse 6 says, this is he, talking about Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only but by the water and the blood. Okay, so what's John talking about here? It would take us way too much time, and I'm sure I wouldn't really do it justice to try to explain all the different ways that theologians have tried to interpret the meaning of water and blood in this passage. And trust me, there, there really are a lot of different theories out there, uh, ranging anywhere from like amniotic fluid that was indicating Jesus' birth and the blood referring to his death, or water and blood that came out of Jesus' side, so that meaning crucifixion. So just some really interesting theories, and all of them have difficulties. But it seems that many theologians tend to agree that the water is likely a reference to the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist, hence the water. Uh, and, and the blood is most likely a reference to Jesus' crucifixion, which would have been the ending of his earthly ministry, where he spilled his blood, thereby making atonement once and for all for the sins of humanity, hence the blood. So now think about this. Did you witness the events of Jesus' life with your own eyes? Did you see him baptized? Did you see him crucified? You know, you and I didn't see Jesus Maybe some of you feel old enough to have been around at that time, but uh, we, we've not seen that with our own eyes. We've not seen him. So, so how is it that we have come to believe in this Jesus? Well, we believe in Jesus because we were told about Jesus by others who had seen Jesus, others who we have never met. And we believe in Jesus because of stories that were told to us about him by those who did know him. And those stories, by God's grace and providence, have been preserved and handed down from generation to generation for centuries until one day they happen to be repeated to you or you happen to read about them in God's word. It's, it's pretty incredible to think about when you stop and think about it. But before we... like. I can hear the skeptics in the room like starting to say things. Uh, that, this is really the way that we believe anything about history. Uh, any historical fact that we believe in, this is, this is the way that we've come to believe that historical fact, isn't it? I mean, at least anything that we didn't see with our own eyes. Now think of uh, 9-11. Like that's something that I didn't, I wasn't in New York City, but I was in Alexandria watching a TV and seeing the news footage, but my kids weren't alive at that time. So they are trusting a historical account that has been passed down to them to believe this thing. And we're willing to do that, aren't we? We're willing to, to treat history that way. We're willing to trust the testimony of someone else who did see it with their own eyes, as long as we perceive the one that's testifying to be a trustworthy and reliable source. And that's the kicker. And that's what scares me about chat GPT and this whole like AI phenomenon that we're watching unfold around us in the world right now. Maybe I'm just getting old, but like, man, that thing is really scary to me. Um, but, but see, John, he's not asking us to trust some AI-generated fabrication. He doesn't expect us to believe in Jesus based on blind faith or some high hopes that aren't actually rooted in actual truth. He, John, roots our belief in Christ in historical fact. To save time, I won't have us turn there, but in the book of Matthew, there's a couple of spots that I wanted to, to highlight. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, 
Uh, That story is an account of Jesus being raised from the waters of baptism. Matthew tells us that the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And then the next thing you hear is the Father from heaven, this bellowing voice, testifying, this is my beloved Son. And the implication is that everyone within earshot of the waters of the Jordan River that day would have been able to be, I guess we'd call them ear witnesses, to the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And if that event hadn't actually happened the way that Matthew said that it did, it would have just taken one person to say, nope, mm -mm, I was there. I didn't see no dove. I didn't hear no voice. These people making things up. And the whole thing would have unraveled. But the dove, we believe, did descend. The Father did declare. We can trust the testimony of the water. That's what John's saying there. But if we keep looking at verse 6, what we see in the middle of verse 6, apparently the water wasn't what the false teachers had an issue with. Look at what he says. uh, Sorry, because John makes a point to clarify that Jesus came not by water only, but by the water and the blood. So he's like, hey, they're, they're, I'll give you the water thing. Like that's what everybody seems to be okay. But, but they're trying to say that, that it wasn't the blood, by the blood. So uh, later on in Matthew in chapter 27, and if you're taking notes for, uh, that's 51 through 54, uh, we're given a crazy scene. Um, if you know that chapter, that's when Jesus is, is just being crucified. Uh, he, he's bre- breathed his last breath. He, he commits his spirit to the Lord. And then Matthew tells us that the temple curtain uh, covering the most holy part of the most holy temple in Jerusalem was torn in two from top to bottom. You've got to think that probably got the religious leader's attention. And, and then there's this earthquake, and there are rocks that are splitting in half. And let's not forget all the tombs that suddenly open up like a Michael Jackson music video. I mean, think about that. Believers who moments before were buried dead beneath the earth are now very much not buried and very much not dead, and instead they're roaming around the city streets of Jerusalem. I mean, just think about that. Can you imagine what that would have been like to have one of those guys stroll up to you on the street corner? Like an apocalypse, like zombie apocalypse. If you had been there, there's no way that the events of that day weren't going to stick with you for the rest of your life. I think it's safe to say that just about everyone in Jerusalem would have known something very unusual has, has taken place today. All of those little divine signs, the earthquake, the, the shaking, I mean, the splitting rocks and the, the zombie people, believers, all, all of these divine signs, they were undeniable. They had to be. Matthew 27, verse 54 says this, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, and what took place, what did they do? They were filled with awe, it says, and said, truly, this was the Son of God. As Jesus, the Son of God who became man, took on the sins of humanity and the undeserved punishment of God for those sins by shedding his blood on the cross, thereby making atonement for our sins, meaning that he paid the penalty that we owed, he satisfied the wrath of God that we that should have been poured out on us, and his blood made it possible for our sins to be erased once and for all. As he did all of that, Those that were standing closest to him, his very enemies no less, the ones in charge of making sure he was successfully killed, they were so overwhelmed with what they were witnessing with their eyes that they couldn't help but proclaim, truly, this was the Son of God. We can trust the testimony of the blood. And we must. See, it wasn't just Jesus' baptism, the water only. The gospel that we believe The true gospel, it's a water and blood gospel. It's the way that it's been referred to in the past. Both are necessary. Both testify about the truthfulness of Jesus' deity. But John says that there's a third testimony. He says the Spirit. Look in verse uh, verse 6 again, toward the end of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So so John says, the Spirit also testifies, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, the Spirit of the Trinity. 
And he says, we can trust the testimony of the Spirit. Why can we trust the Spirit? Because he says the Spirit is the truth. So that means the Spirit's probably not going to lie if he's the truth. Jesus told uh, Jesus himself had actually told us that this was the case. Do you remember studying that back in, in uh, the, the Gospel of John in chapter 15? Verse 26, this is what Jesus said about the Spirit. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what is he going to do? The Spirit of truth. He will bear witness about me. That's what Jesus said. It's the Spirit's job to bear witness about the Son. That's what he does. He testifies. And John says that the Spirit's testimony is the most trustworthy testimony there is. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, meaning if we're willing to receive the testimony that a man will tell us about something that he's seen with his natural eyes, then the testimony of God is greater. The testimony of the Spirit is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. What is that testimony concerning his son, you might, you might ask? Well, good thing you did. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in the son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Verse 13. John says, I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't, don't doubt it, John says. And, and that's what John has been saying all along. He's been connecting the knowledge of our birth in Christ, the knowledge of our obeying God and his commandments, the knowledge of our love for one another and love for God. He's been saying all of it is so that you can know that you have eternal life. In chapter 1, verse 2, he said, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. In chapter 2, verse 25, he said, And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. In chapter 3, verse 14, he said, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In chapter 4, verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Literally, that we might have eternal life through him. So that, if you kind of think of that first half of chapter 5 as like a theological uh, discussion that John is having with us. And then he turns his attention in the second half of chapter 5. And it's more of like his pastoral heart. He's going to kind of put on his pastor cap and say, now let, me, let, me, let me talk to you just one last time before I lose your attention and say a couple of things that I want to make sure that you know. And so that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time, just touching on a few of those things that he highlights at the end of his letter. So the, the first thing that I, think that I think John wants us to see, and this is in verse 14, he wants us to know that Jesus hears our prayers. Do you see that in the text? Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So Jesus, John is saying, has given us, as children of God, he's given us access to God the Father. That's an incredible thing that we have. We, we have. We've talked about this many times on Sundays. We should have no business coming into the presence of a holy God. But Jesus has purchased our access into God's presence. Listen to this quote by Constantine Campbell. from her, uh, I don't know if it's, I guess it's a him. His commentary. Uh, listen to this quote. Oh, this is so good. Listen. He says prayer, so he's, he's going to connect prayer and access to the Lord. Prayer is the ultimate expression of our access to God. Think about that. We have access to God. How is that expressed? Well, in prayer. That's how it's expressed. The fact, this is Constantine still, the fact that the creator of the entire universe listens to our requests and petitions is truly remarkable. Who are we that God should listen to us? And yet, he does. Our level of confidence in prayer reflects the level of our confidence in our access to him. 
It's one thing to talk about our access to God. It's another thing to act on that access. Surely prayer is the chief way we act on our access. I think that's a good word for us. That's a good word for me. I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to waste the access that Christ has purchased for me in relationship to God our Father. So may, maybe you need to hear that as well. Do you need to hear Jesus inviting you again this morning to bring your requests to him, to bring your needs, to bring the things that are weighing you down, to bring those to him? Do you need to be reminded that you have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ? Do you need to be reminded that God, once you come into his presence, he doesn't just like have his fingers stuck in his ears. He's listening. He's hearing you as his child. He's embracing you. That's the God that we have. And John wants us to know God hears our prayers. Second thing, God wants us to know, I'm sorry, John wants us to know that, that Jesus, that God grants our requests. So not only does he hear our requests, but he grants those requests. Look at that in verse 15. It says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So not only is it incredible that the God of the universe would allow us to even make words in his presence, this says that, yes, he hears us, and he wants to give us the requests that we ask. This is incredible. James, it makes me think of James chapter 1, uh, verse 5. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And, James says, it promises, it will be given him. That's just incredible. But before we, like, get untethered to what John is trying to, to make the point here. Look, look back at verse 14, because it's not just whatever you ask. There's a condition in verse 14. You see that condition? This is the confidence that we have toward him that, and here, that big two-letter word, if, if we ask anything according to his will. There's the condition. So yes, God will grant us our requests, but those requests need to be requests that are attached, that are governed by His will. We can't just ask for whatever we want to serve ourselves. Listen to this quote from, uh, from uh, John Stott. He says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending God's will to ours, but prayer is the prescribed way of subordinating that means putting our will below, subordinating our will to God's. It is by prayer that we see God's will, that we embrace God's will, and that we align ourselves with God's will. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. That's how we need to pray when we ask things. We need to pray. And if, if you can't pray that attached to the prayer that you're asking the Lord, then it's probably not a prayer that's according to his will. I mean, think about the things you've recently asked God for. Have you asked them according to God's will? How do you know? Does what you're praying for conflict with anything in Scripture? If it doesn't, then go to the second, this second question. Is there anywhere in Scripture that actually encourages you to ask what you're asking for? And if both of those check out, then perhaps this actually is something that the Lord wants you to pray for. So go ahead and pray it. I mean, we could some, sometimes think that because it's the Lord's uh, word, this is a warning. So sometimes we can think that because it's the Lord's word, that it's not something that we need to pray. Like it's, it's written there in God's word. We don't need to like pray that thing. But yes, we really do need to do that. God delights to hear his people bringing the requests that they have to him that are, that are saturated in and that come from God's word. He wants to hear those requests. They delight him. So let's bring those to him. Things like what? Things like, Lord, save my unbelieving family. Things like, Lord, help our church to be a light in this neighborhood. We're going to go out on December 10th. Lord, help us to be able to preach the gospel through our singing and through the gifts that you give us and the interactions that we're going to have. Lord, help me to stop wasting my life on myself. Lord, these are things that, that are in Scripture that God wants us to pray. He wants us to bring these requests to him. So let's bring our requests to him and then let's pray those requests according to his will. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, as we do that, let's just 
Let, let's get happy. Let's, let's be, uh, be Christians who are happy as we wait in eager anticipation to see how God will grant the requests that we bring to him. And then uh, I'll take a quick second to make a note. Let, let me just do this on the fly instead of reading what I have here because I just want to not run out of time. Um, if you were reading along there, verse 16 and 17 has some pretty, uh, pretty strange phrases. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, like what in the world, John, are you talking about there? That is very confusing as to all the things you've said previously in this letter. It seems like all sin leads to death. I think Paul said that, something about the wages of sin is death. And so like, what, what is John really talking about here? Well, surely he's, if, this, if this has been preserved in God's canon of Scripture for this many centuries, surely it can't be that John is, is all of a sudden going to like drop a little heresy in here. Um, no, what John, I think, is saying, and I've, I've had other guys help me to come to this conclusion, I think what John is saying here is that there is a sin that leads to death. Obviously, all sin leads to death. Uh, but for the believer who sins... Does that sin lead that believer to death? It can't. Because Jesus died for that sin. Jesus forgives that sin. So in that sense, John is saying there is sin that doesn't lead to death. All sin is wrong. So we, we, we aren't supposed to sin. He who keeps on sinning has no assurance that, that he's committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. And, and then he's saying there is a sin that leads to death, and that's the kind of death that an unbeliever uh, commits. That's the kind of sin that is coming from a heart of rebellion and lawlessness and not wanting anything to do. And that sin leads to death. And, and then why, why is he saying, then don't pray for that kind of sin? Don't, don't pray for that. That seems odd. Why, why would we not want to pray for unbelievers? Well, I don't think that's the point he's making there either. I think he's just saying in comparison to the energy and time that you're going to spend praying for your brother who's caught in sin, so that the Lord would give that brother life. Spend your energy there. You know, yes, it's going to be the, the occasion where we need to pray for unbelievers. He's not, that's not the point that John's making there. He's not saying don't pray for unbelievers. Does that make sense? Um, so anyway, that's kind of quick. This is a, a quote that sums that up. Uh, the sin not unto death is one which a believer can and does commit. And the sin unto death is one which a believer does not and cannot commit, praise God. Uh, and that's David Scholler. Uh, so anyway, John's point, he's not trying to make a theological statement about unpardonable sins. Sin's wrong. He says it plainly, all, all wrongdoing is sin. Uh, he's just trying to make the point that it might be a better use of your time and energy to pray for your brother or sister who's struggling in a battle with sin than ignoring them to pray for someone who is in open rebellion against God. Let me read this quote too, uh, because I think you know, I was talking earlier about the access that we have to God and how the way that we express that access, the act on that access is by prayer. Listen to this quote that talks about uh, this particular example of, of praying for your brother who's caught in sin. Uh, Constantine Campbell again says, if confidence in prayer reflects confidence in our access to God, that's what we talked about a second ago, then we might say that prayer for a brother or sister caught in sin reflects our love for them. Surely, genuine love for others ought to issue in fervent prayer for them. Yet so often we fail to pray for others as we ought. Why is that? Indeed, for some Christians, it seems easier to offer practical deeds of love expressed by action than to sit down and pray for a loved one. And yet there is nothing easier to do than to pray for someone. I think another, that's another great word for, to, to try to challenge the way that we tend to think. We, we hear somebody's sick and we think, oh, I've got to get them a meal. That's great. We do need to get them a meal. We need to put them on the, the meal train. But we need to put them on the prayer train. We need to be lifting the needs of our brothers and sisters, especially when we see them. That, that's interesting how it, he says, when, um, uh, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin. So these aren't like those sins that just happen inside of our mind and our hearts. These, these are sins that that you are visible, that you can witness. So if we see those kinds of sins, if we see our brothers and sisters sinning in those kinds of ways, then we ought to pray 
that God would give life to them. We ought to ask, Lord, give life to my brother and my sister. Okay, so that's that one. Third one, uh, John wants us to know that we are safe in Jesus' hands. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what is John saying here? Everyone born of God, he says right at the beginning of verse 18, everyone born of God, so that's me and you who have professed faith in Christ. What does he say about us? We aren't going to keep sinning because we're born of God, and he's made that point elsewhere in the letter. So everyone born of God, me and you, we aren't going to keep sinning. He has been, then, then he doesn't, it gets a little confusing, but then he says, he who was born of God. So is he talking about us there? What do you think? No, I think he's talking about Jesus there. He, Jesus, who was born of God, that one, he protects us, him. He protects us, and he doesn't let the evil one touch us. That's what John's saying there. Everyone born of God doesn't keep on sinning, and he who was born of God, Jesus, he protects those born, the other ones born of God from the evil one. And how does he do this? We've seen this all throughout the letter. Uh, he does this through the promise of eternal life in, in uh, chapter 1. He does this through the cleansing of our sin. He does this through intercession with the Father. He does this with the atonement that he has given for sin by his death. He does this because he destroys the works of the devil. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says, but you don't, Christian. You don't lie in the power of the evil one. The whole world is under his control, the evil one's control. He's the cruel master who commands with burdensome commands, but not so for those of us in Christ. We know that we lie in the Savior's hands. We sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love, we all know this, my love is often cold. But Jesus, he will hold me fast. That's John's third point. And then the fourth point, sorry, I'm going fast, that John wants us to know is that he wants us to know and worship, to know and worship the true God. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. John wants us to know that you are, you, are, you are meant to worship the true God, not, well, that's the last point. I was about to jump ahead. That's the last point he makes. He, he goes to verse 21. This is the very last sentence he makes. And he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Hey, wh where did that come from, John? <laughs> it seems like a strange way to end your letter, pretty abrupt. And, and you know, Content-wise, this is the first time in the entire letter that the topic of idolatry has come up. Like, that's never been a, f a word that's even in the letter. So it's seemingly out of nowhere. But as my hand just tipped a second ago, or is it out of nowhere? I mean, when you think about it, hasn't the encouragement to keep yourselves from idols been what John has been saying all throughout this letter? There's only one true God worthy of worship. And G.K. Chesterton says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And that's what John's saying. I don't want you guys to be worshiping anything. I want you to be worshiping one thing, and that's the Lord. That's the true God. That is Jesus. That's the one who no other name under heaven or on earth is, is um, I think I said that incorrectly. That's the one whose name is worthy of worship and praise. That's the one who is exalted high in heaven, uh, seated at the Father's ha right hand. He's the one that's worthy of our worship. And so John, his very last concern is, hey, hey, people, my brothers, my sisters, little children, my beloved, don't let yourself be tricked into worshiping idols. They're all over the place. 
Spurgeon says this about that phrase, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He said, might we not also say to many a mother and many a father concerning their children and to many a lover of money and hungerer after gold, keep yourselves from idols? Idolatry will intrude itself in one form or another. Some idolize themselves. They look in the glass and there see the face of their God. Oh, beware of all idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's what John's wanting to to leave his readers with and leave us with this morning. That there is a temptation for us to want to make into God all sorts of God's good gifts. And, And John's like, don't do that. There's one true Jesus. He's the one that's promised eternal life. Make sure that you worship him. Make sure that he's the one that remains on the throne of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. When we hear your word preached, Lord, we, we benefit. Lord, we benefit from your word. We benefit from studying your word. We benefit from hearing, uh, hearing your word preached to us. Lord, we, we receive what we prayed for earlier before we started. We receive faith when we hear your word preached, Lord. And, uh, Lord, so would you... Would you solidify the work that you're doing as we hear, as we have spent time listening to this text this morning. Lord, there's so much in this text, so many different ways that you could have been speaking to your people this morning. Lord, would you, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us minds to remember? Would you give us hearts that want to obey your commandments? Lord, would you confirm our calling? Would you give us confidence and faith in you, Lord? Lord, and would you keep us from idols? Or we, CJ made this famous to me. I don't know if the, he's the one that originated with it. CJ Mahaney said that we are idle factories. Got a little conveyor belt popping out idols over and over and over and over again. Well, that's what our hearts are like. Well, we, we need our eyes to be fixed on you, oh worthy one. Lord, so thank you for this study, that the way that you have use these last five weeks to, uh, to help give us confidence, to help make us sure. Lord, and also the ways that you maybe have exposed a lack of confidence and exposed that there isn't assurance in some of our hearts, Lord. And, uh, Lord, and, and where that's the case, Lord, would you, would you bring your salvation to those hearts? Lord, would you, would you regenerate those hearts, Lord, to make them into your child. And Lord, so now as we turn our attention to sing, uh, we're going to sing a song that we sang earlier, Lord, but we're just going to revel in the fact that we don't have to be afraid of our future. We don't have to, to wonder what our future is going to look like. Lord, we, we can be sure Uh, Our sins have been paid for. You have purchased liberty for us. You have secured eternal life for your people, Lord. And I just pray that as we sing this, Lord, you would would allow the faith that's been stirring in our hearts as we've heard your word preached, allow it to bubble out of us in joy uh, and praise.